0: good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Joel. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Eaglemont. If you're new this morning, glad you're with us. We're going to be continuing through our series through the book of Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, please open that up to Romans chapter 8. Last week's passage, we had Harvey speak, and in verse 28 to 30 of Romans chapter 8, Paul explained that God has called us. That he's predestined us. If you're wondering what that word means, I encourage you to listen to last week's message. But that God has preordained us and called us to himself. And that he works all things together for the good for those who are loved and called by him. Now, that leads us to today's passage, which is found in verses 31 to 35. Again, if your Bibles are open, would you read with me? I'm going to be reading out of the NIV this morning. It says this, What then, in light of what we've just spoken about, shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave up all for us all, how will he also not, along with him, graciously give us all things? God, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive from it. God, for what you've put in my heart to share today, but more importantly, God, what your Holy Spirit is going to individually just deposit into each of us. We just want to say right now, God, help us to be open for whatever you want to speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, My illustrious basketball career began when I was in the sixth grade. I stood about four foot eight. I was an intimidating force on the court. You can imagine neighboring schools when I walked into the gym, shook and trembled. I was the worst player on the team by far. I made two baskets the entire season, and neither of them were actually of skill. They were like, I just spun and shot the ball and somehow it went in. So in between my grade six, grade seven year, I was challenged and inspired that I was going to become a better basketball player. So I saved up my paper route money and I bought a basketball hoop and I practiced every day after school. I shot hoops, I worked on my handles, I worked on my shot, I worked on my game every day. And the next year, when it came out for tryouts of the grade six, grade seven MB Sanford elementary school boys team, I was one of the best players on my team. I had grown substantially, standing at a very, very large five foot one, weighing in at approximately probably about 71 pounds. I was still, as you can imagine, force on the basketball court. I was honestly one of our best players, probably one of our two three best players on the team. Nevertheless, when I went into a neighboring school, let's be honest, no one was intimidated. No one was fearful. But here's the thing about basketball. You don't have to be the greatest player. You just have to have a good player on your team, and I did. Sukvir Sohal. Sukvir was in my grade. I've been in school with him for a long time. Unlike me, Veer hit puberty and he hit it hard. He was already over six feet tall, but he wasn't uncoordinated. He had a great shot, good mid-range game, had great handles. Honestly, any school we played, whenever we went, we all felt like we were six feet tall because we knew we had the best player on the court. It didn't matter that the rest of us were runts or that we weren't great because all we needed to do was we needed to get the ball to Souk. That was it. As we begin this passage here, we see Paul say this. What then shall we say in response to these things that God has called us? That he loves us. That he's promised that he'll work all things together for our good. If God is for us, God. The God who created all that is, the heavens and the earth, who holds the universe in his hands. If God is for us, if we are on his team, Who can be against us? A question for you this morning. Is God for you? Uh, I I went back uh, two weeks ago and uh, spent a little time in BC with my family, and it was a chance for my son, to go back and see where his dad grew up. He'd never been to Surrey where I'd grown up and heard stories, so got to see the famed elementary school where I broke basketball records. He got to go to the track where I ran track and field. Got to see where I grew up, the home I went to. But it got me really nostalgic and thinking of a lot of childhood things over the last couple of weeks. And I remember uh, not just the successes, but I remember uh, one particular failure from when I was a child. If anybody has been around Vancouver, has anybody gone to the Capilano Suspension Bridge around Vancouver? So the Capilano Suspension Bridge, if you've ever been there, it's a 460-foot-long suspension bridge that goes across a canyon, 230 feet up in the air. For someone who is afraid of heights like myself, it is a death chamber. I remember I was in elementary school, and my family, we had family visiting from Alberta, and my family went to Capilano, and we went to the suspension bridge. And for someone who always wants to rise up to the challenge, I'm very competitive, I never back down, but it was one of the distinct failures I remember of my childhood. We went to the bridge, I was scared out of my wits, and I got about 10 feet onto the bridge, and I was so scared I was crying. My family kept trying to explain to me, the bridge is safe. It's okay. No one falls. I had heard the stories from school. It was a friend whose friend's neighbor's mom's cousin, I'm pretty sure is what it was, had said that people had fallen off and died on that bridge. It was extremely factual, and I I couldn't get that out of my mind. And I was legit scared to the point I was crying, and even though we tried for like 30, 40 minutes, my family trying to counsel me, trying to get me across, I could not cross the bridge. Yes, I knew they explained that it was safe. Yes, they showed me that they could do it. But I had no lived real experience of believing that that bridge would hold me. I believed that one of the planks was going to fall through, and I was going to fall to the bottom and die. It didn't matter how many people told me the facts of the bridge being safe to cross. Many of you have grown up in church and you have heard that God is for you and when I ask that question you automatically give an intellectual answer yes I know this one I heard it in Sunday school God is for me I'm not asking if you've heard it I'm asking in your life is God for you We see throughout scripture those who have become aware of God and have even seen how God has moved around them but they do not believe the answer to that question is yes, God is for me. In the book of Exodus, Exodus 14:12, we see the response of the Israelites. These same Israelites who had seen God work incredible miracles. God brought Moses back to Egypt to stand up to Pharaoh. We see the plagues, we see Pharaoh do what no one thought he would do, and he releases the, the Hebrew people to leave from Egypt. Not just that, then he, when he chases them again, these are the same people that walked through dry ground through a river that literally split in two as God miraculously provided for them, following a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day of God's presence. Yet this is their response as they reach hardship in the wilderness. They suddenly have conflict, and what's the response? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us just be slaves in Egypt. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. See, these people had seen the provision of God, yet they didn't personally know the answer. Is God for you? And as soon as hardship came, they questioned that. They hit that bridge, and they went, I know you're saying that it's safe, but I don't believe it is. Yet we see those who know in their hearts of hearts because of a personal encounter with the presence of God. That he is for them. In the book of Judges, we see Gideon as an example. Judges chapter 6 and 8, if you want to read those later today to reference this story. But Gideon, of all things, was extremely petrified when we see him first encounter God. He's hiding in a winepress because there's this mighty army attacking the Israelites called the Midianites. They're powerful, they're huge, and Israel is hiding from them, including Gideon, who's hiding in a winepress because he's so afraid. But God calls him and tells him that he is to lead the Israelites to war against the Midianites, and he would defeat them. Gideon believes God. So he rallies up troops, 32,000 men, quite a sizable army, but that's less than a quarter the size of the Midianite army. I would already feel quite scared being outnumbered four to one. But yet God says to Gideon, I want to prove that it's me and it's not you. You have too many men. I want you to go to the men and say, whoever is afraid, you can leave. And that 32,000 person army was drifted down to 10,000 men. I'd be petrified already. But God says once again, you still have too many men. I want you to take these men to the river. And for the men that drink directly out of the water like a dog, they can stay. Anybody who cups the water or drinks it like that, they can go. And that 10,000-person army was, was brought down again to 300. Now they are ready for God to prove that he was for them. And that army of 300 men defeated the Midianites. Church, if God is for you, who can be against you? What would it look like if each and every day you lived your life realizing that God of the universe, the God that has created everyone and everything around you, is for you? Again, not just an intellectual answer. I want us to ponder through this morning, through this message, I want you to ponder this question. What would my life look like if I lived in light of God? Being for me. If you live a life out of this belief that God is for you, it means you live in light of five realities that we see Paul unpack in the remainder of these verses. We're going to go through them quickly this morning. The first reality is this that it is God who gives, He is a God who gives. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Your sin and my sin came at great cost. We've already spoken about that this morning as we participated in communion. It was the body of Jesus that was broken, His blood that was shed to pay for your sin and mine. There is nothing greater that God could give. Nothing more extravagant he could provide for you. It was from this that Jesus taught even before his death, look around at creation, how God feeds the birds of the air, how he clothes the flowers of the field. If God provides for those things, how much more you who was created uniquely in his image, how much more will he not provide for you? If God has given so extravagantly, so far to even give His own Son, what would He hold back from you that you need? James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. As we spoke about last week, Harvey spoke really well on Romans 8.28, that God works all things for good. Not that in your life all things will be good. Not that you will not experience hardship, trouble, or strife, but that God will work all things for good. I think one of the keys and one of the challenges we have in the church is that when we read a verse like that, maybe you're like me. That was my favorite verse growing up. I recited that verse. I memorized that verse. When I was asked to give my grad quote when I graduated in my church grad, that's the the Bible verse I gave. But many of us read that verse and we read it through a filter of me and I. The challenge is not to read it from a me perspective, but a God perspective. If God is for me, I know that God gives what is needed, not just for me, but ultimately for what His ultimate purpose purpose is. And because I know that he is good and he loves me, I know that there will be good in the end for me. But the good for me is ultimately what is his good, not what is my definition for good, not what is my idea for my own pleasure. It's not about my pleasure, it's about his good. Church, we have to differentiate between the two of those. Because I think too often when we read about his good, we think about that as meaning our pleasure. And those are two different things. If you're a chess player, you would know that when you play a game of chess, there are many pieces on the board. And ultimately, it's about getting the other person's king, right? But along the way, there's usually not a perfect game where you have nothing that costs you in the end. God is ultimately the one in charge of the board, but that doesn't mean that we get to read the game score according to our own personal feeling as the pawn on the board. Because sometimes there is a sacrifice of a pawn in order for ultimate purpose to be accomplished. Sometimes there will be pain that we experience in our personal lives, from our personal perspectives, but it's because God's ultimate good is being accomplished, and His good will be for our good. God is a God who gives, and he gives what is good. Number two, for those who live out a life of, being, of God being for you, it means that you live out the reality that God chooses. God has chosen you. We see this in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If you are here today, I'm telling you, God has chosen you. Have you ever been chosen for something before? It can be as simple as being chosen for dodgeball when you were in elementary school. Chosen to be on a team. Chosen to be a part of a crew. There's something of value that comes with that. That someone saw something in you that was worthy of you being picked. You are not on God's team because you were the last one left and no one wanted you, but you had to go on a team. God chose you. God wants you. He desires you to be in relationship with you. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says this, Even before He made the world, God loved us and He chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do, and it gave Him great Pleasure. God wants you so much. He desires you so much. And being in relationship with him brings him great pleasure. Number three, God justifies. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. What are the accusations that the enemy loves to throw at you? Is there a particular struggle that you have in your life? Is there a sin that you trip over repeatedly? Is there a character flaw that has become very much poignant, clear, and you are aware of it in your life? A moral failure that the enemy regularly likes to bring up to say that that is what you are. God has justified us. This means that he has declared us righteous, right, pure in Christ. Satan would love to continue to accuse you, but we stand righteous in Jesus. Our Christian experience every day is going to change from day to day, because every day is a new day, which means we have to take up our cross. There are challenges that are going to come, and you will make mistakes, and you will have days where you'll be very aware of your failure and your faults. But even though our day-to-day may change, we stand continually righteous in Jesus. Because his justification never changes. Jesus has already paid the penalty that was required for our sin. And in that, our security is not in our ability to uphold his standards. Our security is found in the fact that he has paid the penalty and he has set the standard for us. God justifies. There's a story of a a young man who grew up in Russia, back in the days of Stalin, and saw the injustice of that world. His family was able to get out of the country and immigrated to the United States around the Minnesota area. And he grew up and he he developed an extreme uh, love for ethics and the law. You can imagine seeing such injustice and unlawfulness he developed such a, a love for the law. It was no surprise, he was very bright and smart, and he was known as a young man of great integrity as he grew up. He decided to become a lawyer. And from that, again, given his reputation of being so upright and so, so truthful, he eventually became a judge and was really the judge for his entire county, was well-renowned. Now, he, as he got older, had a family, had a son, And his son, like many sons, when he went through his teenage years and into his young adult years, went through his own rebellion, especially because of the reputation of his father, he tried to carve out his own. And in that, he made some poor choices. At one point in his young adult years, he got pulled over, was found with illegal substances in his car, and also broke several laws, traffic laws, while he was doing so. It was not the first time that he had run into trouble, but this time he had really gone above and beyond. Given that there weren't very many options, his case ended up coming before the court of his father. And his father was left with this difficult predicament. He loved his son and wanted to protect his son at all costs. Yet with that... He had an innate sense of the law of what was right and true. And as the case was made against him, it was very clear that his son was guilty. Now, the penalty was the fine that would be required was well over $100,000. His son did not have that kind of money. And so with that would be a prison sentence of over two months. And he knew how terrible that would be for his son. You can imagine the torment of him feeling these two poles upon him. The need to uphold what was right and true. He had seen injustice in his youth, and he knew what, what just avoiding and going against what was true leads to. Yet he also had an, such a deep, immense love for his son and would do anything to protect him. After hearing the case, he left and returned with his judgment. As he pounded his gavel, he sentenced his son to either pay the fine or have to do imprisonment. Upon making his judgment, he then took off his robe and walked down from his seat and stood beside his son as his father. At that point, he pulled out his own checkbook and wrote the amount needed to pay the fine to release his son. It's a prime example of what God did for us. God, in his righteousness, in his truth, could not ignore the reality of the consequences of our sin. But in his abundant love, what he did is he stepped down. He had his own son become flesh and blood to pay the penalty that was required for us. Our justification is not by our own merit. It's not by our own change and work in ourselves. But it is solely through the work of Jesus. And that brings us to number four. When we live knowing that God is for us, we live in the reality that Jesus every day intercedes for us. Verse 34, Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This word intercession means that Jesus represents us before the throne of God, and we don't have to represent ourselves. Your case is not how well you've done or how much you've tried to change, how much you've white-knuckled to do different habits. It's Jesus representing you. First John four eight tells us that it's not that God is loving, but it tells us that God, by the very essence of who He is, is love. Hebrews seven twenty five says this. Therefore, He is able once and forever to save those who come to God through Him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Jesus is present ready to intercede for you and to, and for me, not just once, but today and every day. God doesn't want us to live day by day, fearful of just simply making mistakes. I said this in a message last year, I remember, but it's like when you go bowling and you get to have the bumpers up on the alleys so it avoids the gutter balls. The work of Christ essentially puts those bumpers up so that it's not about trying to avoid... The, getting a gutter ball, it's now simply about trying to get that ball straight down to hit the center pin. Jesus came, so it's no longer about us somehow trying to avoid sin. Instead, it's just simply trying to pursue him. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. That brings us finally to number five. We live in the reality that God loves. Who shall separate us? Verse 35, from the love of Christ. Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Again, God, by His very nature, is love. And the answer, even though it's not written here, we will see later in this chapter, but the answer is very clear, nothing. Nothing can separate you from God's love. But only you can choose to receive it. Can I ask you this morning, have you chosen to receive the love that the God of all the universe has extravagantly extended towards you? Maybe you've been in church a number of times. Maybe this is your first Sunday. But have you ever received the gift that is available to you? The Bible tells us that it's very clear and very easy to do. Again, it's already been extended, but it's about you simply receiving it. First, it involves just us talking to God, which we call prayer. It's a conversation with God. You could do that right now. It's admitting that we are a sinner, that we can't fix ourselves, that we are not our own God, and that we are in need of forgiveness. It's believing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died for your sin. Asking him, To forgive you and offering your life to live for Him. That's it. And upon that, you receive that stamp forgiven. That is officially the judgment. But some of us have been scammed by the enemy. We scan to believe things that aren't true. Some of you have even said that prayer. You've maybe even said it multiple times before. Yet today in your lived reality, not in your intellect, not in what you have heard you're supposed to believe, but in your lived reality, you believe something different. Because Satan has convinced you, you are not forgiven. Because what you've done is unforgivable. It's unlovable. That God wouldn't actually want you. Maybe he would want others who don't have the junk in their closet that you do. I'm going to ask the question that I asked at the beginning of our message today. What would it look like in your life if you lived today and every day out of the abundance of the reality that God was for you? That God gives you good things in your life. Whether you experience them as pleasure or pain. That God would always give you things that are good and what you need. That God has chosen you. That you aren't simply here because your family brought you to church one time. You aren't here because your friend invited you. You aren't here because it's just what you do on a Sunday. You're here because God has chosen you. That God has justified you. That you don't have to worry about doing everything right. God says, stop worrying about making mistakes. Just pursue me. Come to know me. Come to learn my voice and follow me. That Jesus every day intercedes on your behalf. And there is nothing in your past or your present that he is unwilling to come to and to speak to you, because God loves you with an inexplicable, incomprehensible, and unbreakable love. Has God spoken to you this morning? I'm going to ask if you'll close your eyes in prayer with me. And again, if you're new to church, I don't ask you to close your eyes because God can only hear you because your eyes are closed. That's not the case. I suggest you close your eyes because if you're like me, you get distracted really easily. And for us just to focus right now on what God wants to say to you. Perhaps there's a part of the message this morning, maybe one of those lived realities that kind of clicked where the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart. You're not living that out. That your life isn't a fleshed out reality Of living that God is for you. I'm just going to give a moment. I just want you in your own heart and mind to respond to God just in a couple moments of silence and then I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, help me live my life today, not out of fear of what this world has told me, but out of a confident boldness, rooted in the truth that you have called me, you have chosen me, you have justified me, you love me, and you give me all that I need, that I am yours, and you are for me. Help me not just to know that's true, Help me to live that that's true. By the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.